Welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast where we cover the big news in regulatory affairs. I'm James Paniki, back in your feed after a week away. And thank you very much to our teams covering both the ABA's Spring Antitrust Meeting and the IAPP Global Privacy Summit in Washington, D.C. It was great to hear their voices coming directly to you in the podcast from the margins of those conferences. And don't forget to check out those podcasts if you haven't heard them already. They're available at our archives at mlexmarketinsight.com. As for today, well, we'll be handing things over to our correspondents in South Korea in just over 10 minutes from now. Jenny Lee and Woo Yong Lee have prepared a special report for MLEX based on an extended interview with the head of the Personal Information Protection Commission, Yoon Jong-in. It's a vital moment in the country's revamp of its privacy rules, and our correspondents have been all over that story in the course of the last few months, and we'll tease out some of the issues there. First up, though, the story that everyone is talking about at the moment, Elon Musk's $44 billion US dollar bid for the social media platform Twitter. MLEX has responded to the news of the move by the Tesla founder with a fine piece of analysis, a joint effort from our reporters in both Europe and the US. And one of the authors is Jakub Krupa, who covers tech issues from our offices in London. And Jakub joins me now for a chat. So let's start with what's unusual about this deal. I mean, firstly, there was Musk's gradual approach as a minority shareholder, all of the speculation that that led to then his refusal to join the board, and we got talking about that, and then this final uh, takeover attempt, which appears to be successful. It's all rather unorthodox, to say the very least, isn't it? That's right, yes. I mean, obviously, we, we, we came to expect unorthodox things from Elon Musk, so I think that's not really a surprise. But the fact that he first bought some shares of Twitter, declared them pretty late, probably too late. Some regulators are probably going to look into this and built his stake up to 9%, becoming the largest minority shareholder of Twitter. And therefore, that's where we saw the headlines about Elon Musk now will have a, some something to say, at least, about Twitter. And then there was this whole discussion about whether he should join the board of Twitter, whether, whether you know, it was one of the critics of the platforms, but now the largest minority shareholder, what kind of role he envisages for himself. Um, with Twitter. And, and again, we had back at four for a couple of days. And then Musk said, no, actually, I'm not joining the board, uh, which kind of opened the way for him to plan next steps and think about, you know, what he wants to achieve um, with the company, potentially as, a, as an owner. And that's where the takeover attempt came. Initially, again, Twitter very, very openly saying, this is not something we are willing to entertain. But at the end of the day, the offer is just too good to refuse in a way. And I guess that's what opened the way uh, for him to, to get into that final stage of negotiations that we're in now. And, uh, and I, but I think that whole approach is, you know, the last two weeks of people talking about, is he serious? Is it really happening? That kind of incredulity of he's doing already a lot with SpaceX, with Tesla, with others. Why would he do this? Like, this is not something he needs to do. This is not something where you have clear prospect of earning lots of money. And he openly said, I'm not in this for economic reasons. Um, so so it's, I think it's just very, yeah, very unorthodox. But then again, that's Elon Musk we're talking about. Well, if, if he's not in it to make money, that leads to the next question, which is he's in it. Uh, presumably because he wants to talk about content moderation and free speech. I mean, his politics have been described as loosely libertarian, so very much in favour of free speech. That in turn opens up questions about how the platform 
might work under his leadership, and inevitably that also leads to us uh, pondering uh, the ban on former US President Donald Trump and how to manage that, how to manage misinformation on the platform. There's a lot going on, isn't there? Absolutely, yes. And I think, I think that's the that's really important part of this deal because, I, as I said, even Musk himself saying he's not there for economic reasons, he's not there to make money, it's, it's about something else. And I, th- I think there's lots of kind of people trying to read a bit too much from very few words that we've had from Elon Musk about what does that actually mean? Um, and he's been trying to kind of hedge that, saying, you know, Yes, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. It's the Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. But he also said, obviously, we need to comply with all the laws. So I think there's a bit of speculation there about how a platform under his leadership um, could look like. But what is very clear is that he's essentially saying, if there's any doubt about whether we, something should stay on the platform or whether we should remove it, we should err on the side of caution. That's a very kind of American understanding of free, of free speech, because obviously in Europe, in the UK, we've seen, particularly in recent years, push towards doing something with stuff which even legal but but harmful in a way and that can be hateful content that can be disinformation now you know for you uh, for you or me or, or a court or anyone listening to this podcast the, to determine with 100 percent certainty whether a controversial comment is absolutely legal or not would probably take ages or weeks or whatever now platforms on a daily basis need to make these calls very snappy and very quickly and kind of make sure that they can react to whatever they see as dangerous because we know how quickly stuff can spread on twitter and facebook now if he tells his moderators or his teams please be cautious please err on the side of caution that will probably change the way the whole debate is is conducted online and we've seen the comments from from musk over the last 48 hours when he's saying you know for twitter to deserve public trust it must be politically neutral which effectively means upsetting the far right and the far left equally now again that's the concept of balance debate probably lots of people would discuss would 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 question and say that this that's not necessarily what twitter should be doing probably you know it, it means uh, not upsetting the far right and far left but making sure that the 80 percent in the middle is happy um so there's i think i think there's lots of discussion there and and musk's comments about the fact that twitter sends it free speech again one of his um statements from the last few days uh, clearly suggests that what he he sees what's been happening so far as as too um invasive the question is, how do we sort it out? And, and I, I'm not sure he's he's got uh, all the answers already. And just to be clear, Jakob, when you say that he will err on the side of caution, do you mean that he will err on the side of free speech? Is that what he's trying to say? Th- th- absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. And he says, you know, if, if someone wants to ban something, um, you need to have specific laws that say this, this should be banned. Now, again, Free speech is such an elusive thing in a way that it's very difficult to define every single thing you can say that might be illegal or harmful or potentially dangerous. So obviously, you know, it's not like a it's not like a highway code that you can specify if you ride your car too fast that's dangerous. If you, it's much more difficult than that. So I think there's lots of nuance. There's lots of margin calls there, and I think again. Twitter under his leadership could be doing things a bit differently than it has been doing in the last couple of years. And as you rightly point out, Americans have a very clear concept of free speech and it's uh, the, the, those notions are 
enshrined constitutionally. In the rest of the world, and it's a global platform that we're talking about, there are increasingly um, uh, different uh, interpretations of what free speech should entail. There are content moderation laws that are coming into effect uh, in Europe, for example, in particular the EU. So it is a complex regulatory world that uh, that Musk is entering into. That's right, absolutely. Now, I wonder if he's fully aware of what, what's, what's coming for him. Obviously, the, the EU passed the Digital Services Act recently, which has lots about content moderation, fighting disinformation, but also, you know, fairly burdensome requirements and platforms about conducting risk assessments, monitoring audits, all sorts of stuff that I would imagine Elon Musk, given his public statement on this, may not be happy with. Now, there are bits in these regulations that he will be happy with, which is about, you know, providing more transparency about how algorithms work. For example, he, he, he's been saying openly, this is, you know, I want people to know how Twitter distributes things and why something gets popular, why something doesn't. But that bit about content moderation might be critical. And in the UK, for example, there's the online safety bill, which has a specific classification of legal but harmful content. Now, again, Elon Musk has been saying, if it's legal, it's legal. I'm not going to delete that. But what if it's legal but harmful? Something that the UK legislators are now trying to, to, to write into law. Um, or Again, that, that all goes back to, to kind of moderation calls, how the company's culture um, works. And obviously with him saying we should err on the side of caution, that to me sounds like a bit of a problem coming up. And, and obviously we've had comments as well from EU and UK politicians in recent days saying we welcome everyone, we are happy for whoever is leading these companies, but the rules are rules and you need to, you need to follow them. And then finally, we obviously mentioned EU and the UK, but there are also other countries in the world you know, that, that, that may not be massive fans of free speech. I, I can think of one of those countries where Elon Musk has other interests with his, with his Tesla um, company where he's producing batteries in China. Uh, how will China, for example, react to whatever he does on Twitter and whether they will try to leverage that when dealing with Elon Musk and Tesla? Lots of, lots of questions there. Mm. Now, we're recording this on Thursday morning in the UK, so there's still a lot of uncertainty about the deal and whether it will go through. We've also seen some pushback from the markets with Tesla stocks uh, going down significantly in recent days amid concerns that Musk can't focus on both Twitter and Tesla, uh, and also concerns that he might have to dip into his own Tesla shares to fund the Twitter acquisition. So there's a lot that has yet to be resolved, right? Absolutely, yes. And I think it's, you know, if you, if you look at the share price of Twitter, um, it's trading about 10, 15% below what Musk offered. Now, for a deal that advanced, that's been, you know, even announced by both parties, to, to still see, you know, people actually not believing that this will be sold for that amount of money. That that tells you a lot about kind of trust in Musk and whether his attention span is, is you know, en enough for this, for this deal to go through. Also, there's something that, uh, particularly in the US, was discussed over the last few days. Um, the, 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 the deal that he signed with Twitter um, essentially for, forbids him from making disparaging comments about the platform or its employees. Now, Elon Musk, being the outspoken Elon Musk he is, he's been making comments about Twitter in the last few days and about its employees. Now, whether that's something that they'll be willing to, you know, cancel deal over, I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. But this certainly will draw, again, a scrutiny to whatever he's doing and his actions. And I think we know that there's a penalty of $1 billion to pay even if he withdraws the offer for Twitter. Uh, we know that given the, um, the losses in Tesla, 
Um, that probably could be easily offset if the market sees him resigning from Twitter and focusing on Tesla and the, therefore Tesla shares going up. But again, as we started this conversation, he's not here for the money. He's here to, to fight his you know, battle for free speech. And therefore, probably there's a price he's willing to pay. And potentially that might be the price. So there's lots of uncertainty there. There's lots of regulatory problems ahead. But no, again, Elon Musk is Elon Musk. And I think probably even he doesn't know what he wants to do here. Jakob, great talking to you about this. Thanks to you and everyone at MLEX who helped uh, to write the comment. And no doubt we'll have a chance to talk about this uh, over coming weeks and months. We'll keep an eye on that. Thank you. MLEX correspondent Jakub Kruper speaking to me on Thursday morning London time. And as we expected, things have indeed progressed a little since then with Musk selling $4 billion worth of his stake in Tesla to fund the Twitter acquisition. And that could pave the way for other investors to come in alongside Musk. So we'll keep you posted. The analysis that I mentioned earlier was written by Jakub in London, Jenna Ebersol and Dave Pereira in Washington, D.C., and Mike Swift in San Francisco. And the good news is that it's available for you to read at our website. mlexmarketinsight.com is where you need to be. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for all of the best of our reporting and analysis, and there's also an archive of podcasts. Thank you for listening today. James Paniki with you. And in just a few moments, we'll be crossing to our offices in South Korea. And don't forget, you can subscribe to MLEX's weekly podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Now, as our readers know only too well, in 2020, South Korea's data privacy landscape underwent a seismic transformation, with lawmakers adopting sweeping changes to the country's regime. The amended privacy law has become the country's primary privacy statute, cutting across both public and private sectors. And there are now more changes afoot, and it's all happening against a backdrop of an unprecedented collection of personal data on the part of both local and international platforms. The person at the centre of the regulatory firestorm is the country's privacy chief, Yung Jong-in, who sat down with our Seoul-based reporters Jenny Lee and Wu Yong Lee recently to relive the rollercoaster ride of the last couple of years. The interview is the foundation of a new MLEX special report, which is set to appear online next week. And what better excuse to talk through privacy legislation in South Korea with Jenny and Wu Yong, who join me now. Uh, Wu Yong, firstly, let's talk about Yoon himself uh, as a person rather than as a, a regulator or an enforcer. What is his background and how did he end up in that top job? Uh, sure, James. Uh, Mr. Yoon Jong-in is an elite government official working in the public service in Korea for 30 years. Uh, before he came to lead the agency, he was a vice minister of the interior ministry where where he led the reform of the privacy law and the creation of the agency. So he was the right man to represent the agency. Uh, but in the interview, Yoon said the appointment came as a total surprise for him because he didn't expect, expect to be chosen to be a chairman. I think this is because many of the ministers appointed here are someone outside of the agency. But Yun was a real expert in privacy issues. 
kept behind the curtains, he seemed very confident in telling the direction South Korea needed to take to protect the citizens' privacy while boosting the use of data by businesses, which are two main goals of the agency. Um, so the PIPC launched in August 2020, and thanks to his firm vision in privacy, the agency was able to settle rather quickly in a few months after the launch. So Yoon himself um, set the goals and visions that set the basis of the policy agenda and actions that the agency should take uh, going forward. Now, on the updating of South Korea's privacy law, uh, you've written in the special report that it is central not just to the future of the country's tech industry, which is understandable, but also to the very operations of the PIPC itself. Maybe, uh, Jenny, tell me something about your thinking on that front. Sure. Um, Ever since Yoon was appointed uh, South Korea's privacy chief, he and his agency have been striving to get the bill proposing a new set of amendments to the country's privacy law through parliament. Um, There are several reasons for this. First off, Uh, Because the PIPC is a relatively young agency, which was established in 2020, as Uyang said, it has many ambitious plans in the pipeline, and they include resolving privacy issues surrounding large digital platforms, including Google and Meta platforms, which are collecting and hogging massive amounts of personal data. They also include uh, mitigating privacy risks posed by emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, facial recognition, and the metaverse, as well as alleviating some of the challenges associated with cross-border data transfers. But um, in order to address all of these concerns that underpin the digital economy, the proposal must be adopted by the National Assembly because the current privacy law lacks legal basis for data sharing between platforms, new methods of overseas data transfers, and etc. Another reason why Yoon sees getting the proposal through Parliament as vital, and this is a big one, is that it would award the PIPC the power to impose serious penalties on those caught violating the privacy law. For businesses, the proposed change is provoking real fear because they are now facing the prospect that a privacy misstep will result in a fine of a whopping 3% of annual global turnover, not merely the relevant turnover as defined under current rules. But Yoon stressed uh, during the interview that this shouldn't be a cause for panic because, after all, the new definition is a cap and fines will be proportional to the severity of the offense and that they wouldn't be overly harsh. He also said uh, the hike would make sanctions more reasonable and effective by diverting the emphasis away from criminal punishments and toward uh, economic penalties. Now, in the interview, Yoon also talks about what he describes as a two-way approach when it comes to tackling uh, data breaches and uh, data misuse by big tech. Uh, Wu Yong, let me return to you and ask you, what what does that mean? What is this two-way approach he's uh, talking about? So Yun, um, he is an advocate of voluntary self-regulation approaches when it comes to addressing issues that could lead to data breaches by big tech. But also, he also thinks that government interve- intervention is needed for problems that cannot be corrected easily by the market itself. So first, Yun believes that businesses and the agency can work together to create rules to prevent data breaches. 
So last November, he met 10 e-commerce giants in South Korea, such as Coupon, Naver, Kakao, and eBay Korea, to kick off the process of developing a co-regulation plan for data breaches. So the draft plan is on its way, and it will contain rules that they came up together. And at the same time, Yoon also believes in state intervention when it comes to uh, data misuse by big tech. Uh, he thinks tech giants are monopolizing the market by monopolizing users' data. The companies are collecting massive data from the users and using them to track their preferences to provide targeted advertising. And this brings them massive profits, but also makes the users vulnerable to exploitation and manipulation. So against this backdrop, the PIPC investigating the big tech's practice of tracking online behavioral data for targeted advertising, and the agency expects to release a result very soon. Okay, now, based on your stories, uh, Yoon has highlighted the importance of privacy-enhancing technologies in mitigating risks of personal data breaches. Uh, Maybe, uh, Jenny, could I ask you to elaborate on that a bit uh, for us? For example, is he planning for the PIPC to be directly involved in the development of some of those technologies? Yes, you're right, James. Uh, You noted several times during the interview how important technologies are in safeguarding privacy rights of individuals, cutting down on data leaks, and ensuring safe data use. He said many of the data breaches and misuses he has had to deal with since becoming the PIPC chief could have been prevented if right protection tools were available. For instance, uh, last year, an AI chatbot unleashed a torrent of homophobic and racist slurs, as well as leaked personal information like names, phone numbers, and bank account details. He said that might have been avoided if there had been a technology that filters out sensitive information. That is why uh, developing privacy-enhancing technologies has been high on the PIPC's priority list. The agency has already shifted into high gear, unveiling its plan to develop 11 major technologies and dozens of auxiliary ones by the year 2026. The PIPC is taking the initiative very seriously, allocating the bulk of its annual budget to this purpose. Okay, uh, Wu Yong and Jenny, thank you for all of the work that you've put into this special report. It's a fascinating time for South Korea, and we're so very lucky to have you guys covering these developments. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. Thanks for having us. And I was talking to Wu Yong Lee and Jenny Lee, who work out of MLEX's offices in Seoul. And their special report will be available this coming week at the usual website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, or one word, .com, and it will feature prominently on the homepage. And that, alas, is all we have time for today. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for listening. Bye for now.